Second Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse 11. I'll bring, as is my custom, on the New King James Version, God's Word says, But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and deliver them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, and delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man, dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who walk according to the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise authority. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might Do not bring a reviling accusation against them before the Lord. Uh, In 1 Corinthians, we have taken several weeks, a month, to study the theology of singleness. And we found that this is the number one chapter, probably in the Bible, that really represents it. It has brought forth a lot of interesting responses from all of you. And I want to address a couple of those Also, as we get into the marriage aspects of this from last week and into this week, uh, and that is where we will end that part of our study, Uh, we'll be looking at one other aspect here in 1 Corinthians 7. But I do want to address a couple of things that uh, several people, not just one, but several have asked me about. Uh, The first is, what happened between Genesis, when God said it's not good for man to be alone, and 1 Corinthians 7, 1, where it says it's good for a man to be alone, to not touch a woman, to not get married. What happened between creation, when God looked on that seventh or sixth day, saw man's state after naming all the animals and realizing that there's no one comparable to him among the animals. And while he's in God's image, there is not any, there's not a... a lateral relationship there at all it is obviously that god is transcendent that is above man and so god looked upon the condition and said we're gonna i'm gonna give him someone like him uh and that would be eve what happened between that and this principle in our church age where now what is best for man is to remain a single individual and unmarried. 
Um, and I have two things I want to share with you that I believe accounts for that. Uh, the first is negative, and the second is positive. The first negative is that the relationship between a man and his wife um, has been tainted. And that is the universal effect of sin. And because of that, um, that which God intended to be a very beneficial relationship became an adversarial relationship. And you see this very quickly in the curse upon the woman that her desire will be after her husband's place. That there's going to be an animosity there between a man and his helpmeet. That one that was created perfectly for him is now going to be after his position. And we've talked about that several weeks ago, two weeks ago precisely, um, about the, the role of women in society and why it is so difficult now to reestablish that is because you have this natural or unnatural propensity uh, in your sin nature to want to have authority that doesn't belong to you. And when we begin to exercise or seek after that kind of authority, um, we violate God's design and we bring hardship into all our relationships laterally. And we bring a break in our relationship with God. And I know the world has been telling us that the solution for you to deal with a male-dominated society is to rebel against that authority and to prove that women should be running the world. Um, the other day we were watching, or not we were watching, I was considering, actually, I didn't actually watch it. Usually I sit down and watch these things to make sure I remember them right. But if you remember uh, in the movie My Fair Lady, that uh, he sings a little song, and it's probably my favorite song in the whole movie. It says, why can't women be more like men? Because men get along. We're not emotional. We say what we mean. We mean what we say. And the professor is wandering around saying, singing the little song, Why Can't Women Be More Like Men? Well, that was a couple generations ago attitude. But we have totally reversed that now in our day. In our day, we have uh, really the idea that is propagated throughout our media is why can't men be more like women? Um, and it's the idea that somehow that without men, we wouldn't have war. Um, let me share with you, without women, there would be no war because usually we're fighting over you. Or to get you stuff to make you happy. Um, but we have this idea, this mentality that is contrary to Scripture. So we have sin, and sin has come in, and it's wreaking havoc on the relationship between men and women. And that is why when we come into the church and we have this radical concept from God's word, that in the family of God, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, there is neither male nor female, there is neither slave nor free. And that's a radical relational statement. That somehow we can relate, we can put these things behind us, and we can start to relate to another one another the way God wants us to relate to one another. And that's a war, not against the sexes, but it's a war against my old self, that is being uh, put on or generated by my new self, that I want to be godlike in my relationship with others. And that means I'm going to be humble and I'm going to be sacrificially loving and, and all of those kind of things. So the first difficulty with, with 
uh, God's design in the garden was that we disrupted it with sin. Now, does that make getting married sin? No, it means getting married is going to be hard now. God designed it to be best for you. You ruined best with sin. And now it's going to be difficult. So, uh, the ladies being more relationship-oriented than men uh, were cursed with having animosity in the very relationship that is their ultimate fulfillment. The men who are less relationally oriented and more driven by um, doing things, by activity, uh, by their work, um, find that what is their curse because of sin? Not necessarily relating to their wives. That's why we just scratch our heads and say, what is your problem? Um, Because we're clueless. Um, No, our curse is over our work. That we're going to labor and it's going to be by the sweat of our brow and suddenly work isn't fun anymore like it was before sin. And like it will be when we get to heaven. You're not going to be floating around on clouds and eating bonbons and never gaining any weight. That's not heaven. Um, You're going to be working, but it'll be fun. We try to replicate that here on earth and we can't because it can't be done. Because there's always sin and we're not in the garden anymore. So that's the negative side of why things have changed. But then there's something unique coming into Corinthians. We're really coming into the the New Testament era. Uh, There's a positive thing that is something more wonderful than I think we really grasp hold of. And that is that we have available to us as believers a more intimate relationship with God than Adam had before sin. Once a day, God came and walked with Adam in the garden. That was the extent of their relationship. As a believer, we walk every moment with God dwelling in us. We have that kind of intimacy with God because of the work of Jesus Christ. And if we've trusted Christ our Savior and have received the Holy Spirit in us, we have this intimacy with God that we can genuinely say, I never walk alone. For my Savior is with me. My, the Spirit of God is with me. And therefore, I, I am not alone. And I have this intimacy with my Creator that is Fulfilling. It is a fulfilling relationship. And what we need to develop, and self-control is going to be a byproduct of developing our relationship with the Holy Spirit, is that, that uh, we're going to not be dependent upon these lateral relationships for that kind of intimacy. And so we come to this time period called the church age, and we can come to a passage like this and say, well, why is it no longer best for man to be married um, which it was in the garden, and it seemed to be all through the Old Testament. That was the preference. Why is it best now that we uh, focus on singleness was because of the work that God has done in indwelling us. We now have an intimacy with God. And if we're trying to find that intimacy in other men, you are going to be dissatisfied. First of all, other men are sinners. They're liars. That's who they are. Other women too. I'm using men in the capital M way. 
But God is not. Men are fickle. God is faithful. And so we have this opportunity for a deep relationship with God and an intimacy that Adam never knew. For Adam, though he was in the image of God and without sin, um, and had this wonderful opportunity to walk with God in the garden once a day, you have the privilege as made pure, made righteous people to walk with God every moment of your life. You have an intimacy that Adam didn't have with God. And I would challenge us that if we develop that intimacy, that relationship, that we would find self-control in the area of our fleshly needs to be readily available and we would find that real fulfillment in a relationship with Christ. And every married person here recognizes that you cannot find in a lateral relationship the true intimacy that you can only find from God. It is not a replacement for that. And so for those two reasons, I believe we come to a time period where we ought to be promoting singleness as God's best, but not promoting marriage as sin. And that is we... we are willing to certainly participate in that and and encourage that uh, if uh, necessary. Not a necessary evil. It's a necessary good for those who aren't ready for what's best. So I wanted to address that because I've had three or four of you come and ask me about that. And I'm not sure that I gave you very good answers, uh, at least not the whole picture. So we come now to marriage last week and we find that what do we do now in that setting? And we think, well, that's going to solve all my problems. And every single person that has problems in these areas um, thinks that once I get married, that urge to go out there and have these wrong kind of relationships is going to disappear. And I want to share with you, not true. I want you to notice that in the context of this chapter, what it has to say about marriage focuses in on the problems it's going to bring to your life, not the solutions. Uh, Because the only solution to any issue going on in your life is Jesus Christ. You will not find it in another person outside of that person, Jesus Christ. And so the first thing I tell people in premarital counseling, well, one of the first things, oh, it pretty much is about the first thing in premarital counseling, look at a few of you that know, um, is... uh, you're not going to change that person. Whatever they are now, that's what they're going to be the morning you wake up after you say, I do, forever. Well, not forever, just till death. That's who they're going to be. If you think that once they marry me, I'll straighten them out. I'll get them trained. I will fix them. Okay? If you have that attitude going to marriage, or you think that it will fix you, um, you're going to have your dreams shattered in about 48 hours. Okay? Or 48 years, it doesn't matter, anywhere in there, because it's not going to happen. Only in the person of Jesus Christ will you find that kind of fulfillment and that power to affect change in your life. And so Paul comes upon the marriage uh, relationship and he talks about, listen, um, it's good that you get married, it's better than the sin of uh, adultery, 
But listen, I have to give you some commands because look at the problems that it has brought in. And what was the problems in the Corinthian church we talked about last week was, well, what if I'm walking with God and my spouse is not? What if I receive Christ my Savior and my spouse is not? What if I want to walk with God and my spouse wants to reject God and deny Him? What if... What if... What if... And Paul says, now you've made this commitment and it is for the rest of your life. And even if that one that you have married to chooses to live a godless life, you have made a commitment to them. You must fulfill that commitment. We find that the commandment not to be divorced is reiterated here very strongly by Paul. We talked about that last week. And I want to get to the positive statements this week of what the effect of a godly spouse is on a godless home. Before we do so, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for the opportunity to spend time in your word. And, and Lord, difficult stuff because... We have to receive your rebuke and your correction. And the world doesn't want to hear this and we often sound and hear and listen like the world. And Lord, help us to be willing to hear your truth today, to receive it as authoritative in our life. And to see that you are not the bringer of evil. We are. You are the bringer of good to us. Help us to See that in your commands. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Lord, uh, has a lot planned for you. And whether single or married, uh, and whether you are in a setting where you are the only believer or you are in the privileged position or maybe the dangerous position of being in a very Christianized home, that is where everyone claims Christ, um, God has some work He is doing. And I love this little section, really just one verse, but there's a couple others that, verse, there's a secondary verse as well. But I want to turn to 1 Corinthians 7, verse 14. We're going to spend some time 14 and 16. We're going to jump ahead as well and finish up the whole idea of marriage in chapter 7 by jumping into uh, verse 33 and things like that. But uh, let's look particularly at verse 14. It says, For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage. And we talked about that last week. That doesn't mean you're free to remarry. It doesn't mean that marriage never happened. It means that you are released from staying with them. If they don't want you there, you don't have to be there. You're not going to stay there if they're going to, you know, Uh, break your face every morning because they don't want you there. God has called us to peace. And so that is the principle there. Verse 16, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? A great uh, little twist on what he's been saying 
uh, all along there, don't you know, don't you know, don't you know. That has been a recurring statement of Paul. It's going to pick up later on in Corinthians. Don't you Corinthians know this from God's word? And of course, all of us say, oh yeah, I know, pastor, I know. And what do I say when you say, I know, I know? My response is, silence. Because if you know, you don't need me. You just need to obey. And so Paul comes to the Corinthians, don't you know this? Don't you know this? Don't you know this? And now he's coming in from a kind of a different direction with that same phraseology and saying, you know, you don't know what's going to happen in the future. His expectation is you should have been obeying all this other stuff because you claim to know it. You claim to be spiritual, but you're really carnal, so you know this stuff, so let's get busy and start obeying it. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? You should be treating it like that. Oh yeah, I know, Pastor. Well then do it! That's basically Paul's attitude all the way to now. And now he's saying, let me tell you something that you don't know. And neither do I. You don't know what the influence of a godly life will be on the people around you. But we have some great testimony in the Bible of the power of godly living upon ungodly family members. But I'm going to warn you. Here's the warning. That godly living needs to be consistent without compromise day in and day out over what you might think is the rest of your life forever. Let's look at it. 2 Peter chapter 2. We read it earlier. I want to go there because I want you to see what this means that a godly spouse can sanctify an entire home. The word sanctify means to set it apart. That is to to put it in a condition of being blessed. How can I bless my entire household um, when they're all living godlessly? How can I have that kind of uh, impact upon Because it sure doesn't seem like it. I mean, they curse God. They make fun of Him in front of me. They make my, it difficult for me to obey Him. Um, how can it be that I have a role there of setting them apart to cleanliness, to holiness? How is it that my presence in the home makes that home a holy place? And we're going to go to Second Peter. And Peter's got some great stuff. First Peter as well. Second Peter we're going to focus in on. And it's not the real point of, of Second Peter 2. He's really talking about false teachers. Uh, but in a parenthetical way, um, which is a lengthy parenthesis, it's like four verses long. Um, and then P- Peter kind of gets lost in this wonderfulness of what impact a little minority can have on the immediate surroundings in which he is in. And we have two examples here. Um, and we're going to pick up in verse 5. It says, did not, God did not spare the ancient world. God destroyed them. He sent a flood and He destroyed the world. And I would contend that world isn't a few thousand people. Uh, I would contend that world was probably in the hundreds of millions of people living on the earth at that time. Kind of shakes you up, doesn't it? You know, you look around and you say, oh, is there a righteous man on the earth? And... and uh, in America, or in my school, or in, at my workplace, and, and we start to get like Elijah, where, oh, nobody's serving God but me. Okay, and we get that attitude. Well, Noah was really living it. And out of 
I believe hundreds of millions of people that would have been on the earth by that point, I mean, you add it up. You add up how many generations and you add how, how long they all lived and you do the branches and you'll figure out the math and you'll find out that this, it could be a huge population on the earth at that point. Um, but we find that God looks around and says, boy, they are so wicked. I'm going to destroy them all. I'm fed up with man. I'm sorry I made them. And then he looks down and sees one guy. One man. Okay, well, there is Noah. So I'm going to make a provision for Noah. But notice, God destroys. He didn't spare the whole world for Noah. But I want you to notice who he did spare. He didn't just spare Noah. The verse goes on and says, here he is, one of eight people. Nowhere do we have record that the other seven family members were godly. God does not look down and say, well, there's Noah and Shem, Ham, and Japheth. They're, they're trying to serve me too. And Noah's, Mrs. Noah, she's down there just being a godly woman. No! There is one person on earth that is godly, righteous in God's sight. Noah! God doesn't spare the whole world for Noah's sake. He destroys the whole world because of their wickedness. But I want you to notice who are sanctified, who are set apart for deliverance, and it is his seven family members, his three sons, their three wives, and his wife. They prove that they're not very godly after the flood, some of them. Uh, Seth got the picture. He got, whoa, you know, if God can do this, I better serve him. All right, so there was a godly line there in Seth. Um, but boy, we have... Uh, Within a generation, you have Canaanites. Canaan. And the wickedness that was committed there. Um, And so we look at that condition and we say, okay, God didn't spare the world. But what was set apart by that one man's righteousness? He preached to the world. None of them believed. Who did God deliver? His family. They were set apart for deliverance. They survived the flood, not because of their own righteousness, because of Noah's. And here, this one righteous man in the family sanctified the family in God's sight. And you think, well, that's one exception. Well, let's keep going to... Second Peter, it says, God also turned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to all those after who would live ungodly. You want to live ungodly? Um, God knows how to judge you. And He will. It's just a matter of when, not if. But look at verse 7. He delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Now I want to remind you of this. And it, right, man, it describes Lot as a righteous man who lived in a wicked place. And boy, I feel, I, I feel like Lot more than anyone else. If there's anyone in the Bible I associate with more and more these days, it's Lot. A righteous man dwelling among them, tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. 
He's living amongst the most wicked place on the planet. And he didn't want it to soil him and his family. And it grieved his heart every day. And yet he stayed there. And God had a role for him there. And so here's righteous Lot there. And I want to remind you about his uncle Abram, who is over there bartering with God. And God, you know, says, well, you know, you're going to destroy it. But what about if, if there's 50? What about if there's, you know, 20? What? How about if there's just 10? If there's 10 righteous people, will you save the city for 10 righteous people? And God says, yeah, I'll save the city. If I find 10 righteous people. He arrives there in Sodom and Gomorrah. He does not find 10. 10 would have been probably about the size of Lot's household. He was a wealthy man. He was in high regard. He had a high position in the city. Um, he was a gatekeeper. He was at the gates, so he was, wasn't holding the keys and letting people in and out. He wasn't a doorman. He was on the council of the city. That is, he would have been considered one of the wise men of the city that would have resolved issues, like a judge we would consider it. Um, and we find that uh, he would have had a household of at least ten with his servants and such. And God sends his ambassadors, his angels into the city, and uh, there's only one man. Not Lot's wife, not Lot's daughters, not their son, not their husbands. There was one man. But because of that one man, God says, I can't destroy the city till you're out of here. And I want you to remember what the angel said. Get your family and leave. They weren't righteous. They weren't godly. But because of Lot's position and standing before God, his family was blessed with an opportunity to get out of Sodom. A free pass over God's coming impending judgment that just as God won't destroy Lot with the city, he's not going to destroy Lot's family with the city and so you can get out of town. And and the incredible thing is under that condition, under that state of blessing, that Lot's wife would turn back and look. She wanted Sodom more than a relationship with her husband, and she went right into it. At that point, I want to share with you, Lot was free. He did his responsibility towards his wife. She rejected that and went into that and sought after the judgment of Sodom. Now, why do I use this example? Because just because... You live righteously in your home does not mean that everyone in your household is going to get saved. But they are set apart while you are there. Your presence in that home sets them apart. And I don't think we recognize the extent of God's protection over Christian homes. I don't think we understand it or grasp it. Just how well protected we really are as households that call upon the name of Jesus Christ. The Jewish faith understood it, and and they had that little reminder right on their doorpost as they go in and out. This is a a household of Yahweh, Jehovah. That this is a blessing of God on this house. And Christians have lost track of that. That the very presence of Christians in the home is a defense It is a protection that God has put on those homes. Even if there's just one righteous 
person in that house. Not righteous in your eyes, but righteous in God's. That we are made righteous by the blood of Christ and that we are walking worthy of the calling to righteousness. And so we go back to Corinthians and we find this question. You don't know, do you? Some in your family might get saved. Some might turn out like Seth. By the way, Lot's daughters, they didn't fare so well either, okay? They were kind of sick. Um, uh, But uh, Lot himself was delivered. He's listed as one of the men of faith. You don't know. And that's Paul's point. You don't know. And most spouses who are married to ungodly people, whether before they got saved or afterwards or, or whatever, however that happened, most of them are wanting out of those relationships for purely selfish reasons. And let me share with you, selfishness is godlessness. Selfishness is not being godly. We want out of those relationships, we want out of those homes because it's hard You don't know how hard it is, Pastor. And I've heard it. Believe me, I've heard it. And I look at them and I say, well, first of all, you made that choice. Nowhere in the Bible do I find that you're promised easy. Especially when you choose to violate God. Scripture, but if, it, if uh, that's when a believer marries an unbeliever, and with the foolishness of that, um, but we find also that all right, I came to know Christ, my spouse has not. Oh, it's hard for me. I think I should be uh, let out of this relationship. And they go to God's word and they twist it to say, oh, you see, I'm free because that marriage before I got saved doesn't count. We talked about that last week. But we come instead to Paul's description here. He says, listen, you are setting apart that home. It's affecting your spouse. It'll affect your children. Um, You are setting it apart as holy to the Lord. You are placing a guard. Your presence there places a guard upon that home. And, And the Spirit can work there better than it can work anywhere else. If only you were strong enough, bold enough, brave enough, godly enough to stay there and look to their salvation instead of your own interests. Oh, I know it's hard on you. Sin always is. Living with sinners is hard. Every parent has to do it. I know that when you bring them home from the hospital and they say, oh, what an angel, right? Yeah, they're little demons is what they are. Okay, they are angels. They're fallen ones. If they're one. All right, that's what they are until they get saved. They are little demons. You... Every parent here has lived with an unbeliever in their home with a sin nature going rampant, undaunted by the new nature. And so we find that, yeah, it's hard living with with sinners. It it, it wears on you day after day after day. And in our adoption process, I think that's one thing God really taught me is, is it is wearing to have sinners attack, attack, attack every day, everything you believe. 
God says, be faithful. You do what is right. You do what is godly. It is a testimony to them, either for their coming to Christ or for their judgment one day. But during these days, you set that home apart. Your presence there sets that home and makes it holy. And this is exactly what Peter tries to bring out. I'm going to go back. I'm kind of flipping back and forth between Peter and Paul. Uh, this is exactly what Peter talks about in 1 Peter chapter 3, where it says, Likewise, wives, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. There's a conditional statement there. It's not just your neutral presence there. Okay, Pastor, I'm going to stay there. You can't make me like it, though. I don't have to love him or her. Well, you're still being godless. It's not just because you call upon the name of the Lord one day back there and got saved and got baptized, that that makes your presence there. It's when you are living righteously in that home. When you are showing Christ to everyone there that you are enduring like a good soldier (laughs) in that place for Christ, then the difference begins to take effect. And so it's not going in there as a passive presence, but rather as an active agent of righteousness that you are going to be godly, though everyone around you is godless. And you can do that without speaking a word, apparently, to Peter and have that kind of an impact. Without saying, you're doing wrong! That's not living godly in front of them. You are not there to convict them. You are there, well, you will convict them if you will just live righteously. They see the difference. They see it. Whether it's your parents or your spouse or your your children, they see the difference of whether you're living it or just claiming it. There's no backup. There's no follow. There's no, there's no proof of your profession. They know it. And so we have this wonderful state that if you are the only believer in your home, you, by living righteously in that home, by being godly, by loving as they don't understand love, you set that home apart and create protection from God, by God, over that place. And so why Is divorce such a horrible option? Because you're denying everything taught by this principle.
and you are seeking only your own and not what is God's. Do I expect ungodly wives to divorce their husbands? Yes. Do I expect ungodly husbands to divorce their wives? Yes. That's exactly what Paul's saying. But when it comes to the Christian community, even if you are in a mixed marriage, as, as Paul's going to refer to later on, to even consider it. is to deny any godly love towards that family member. Because if you truly love them, you would sacrifice for them, even as Christ sacrificed himself for us. And this idea of sacrifice comes into the final area we want to talk about in marriage. A little bit different than the verses we just studied, but we want to touch on it. We want to jump to verse 33, where we have this instruction for those that are married. He who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. And then later on at the end of verse 34, but she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. And then jumping down to verse 39, you might say, well, this is kind of hit and miss. Remember, the purpose of the chapter is to teach us the theology of singleness. The little married passages are just inserted as parenthetical. That's why we're jumping around. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she has a liberty to, marry, to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And it's only in the Lord that we want to focus in on. But let's look back at these cares. And so you're going to engage yourself on a different level as a married person. And it's not enough for me simply to stand up here and say, don't ever get divorced, because if that is your mentality going out of here, okay, we have to avoid divorce, honey. We've got to avoid divorce. It's my responsibility to avoid divorce. If you're, it's as bad as if you walked out of here and say, I have to avoid sin. Now, okay, let's, let me list all the sins I have to avoid. You've just gotten yourself into big trouble. You know why? Because you're thinking about something. What are you thinking about? Sin. And that's why Paul in Philippians says, don't sit there and think about sin to avoid. Rather, set your mind on things above. Meditate on that which is noble, pure, good. The list goes on there in Philippians 4. Things that are excellent, things that are, that are righteous. Focus your mind there. Put your meditations there. What, how can I please God today? Oh, that we would wake up every day instead of saying, oh, i got to not do that today. But rather wake up and say, I'm going to please God today. How am I going to please God? Let me list off the ways I'm going to please God today. Well, in your marriage, it's the same way. If we go through this and say, I'm not going to, I don't want to do, I don't, I don't. And you're focusing on all those things you don't want to have happen. Guess what you're focusing on? The very things that are going to destroy your marriage. Paul says, listen, you're a married person. You're going to wake up in the morning and here's what's going to be a concern of your life. How am I going to please my wife? Guys, if you would get up in the morning with that thought, 
mingled in your other thoughts of your brain, like, oh, I have to go to work again today. It would be so much more fun if Adam hadn't sinned. Okay? Um, whatever else. Um, how do I please her today? Which, if you're going to figure out what's going to please your wife, I'm going to give you a little clue here, guys. You've got to figure her out. What does she really pleased with? And I know the world tells you that it's chocolate and flowers, okay, and promises you don't intend to keep. None of those things really please her. She is pleased when you lead. She is pleased when you love. She is pleased when she sees you sacrifice of yourself to invest yourself in that relationship. And that is evidenced. It is evidenced um, by whether or not you listen. You see, you're giving her your attention. You're sacrificing your attention from football or from whatever else it is that's going on in your gray cells there, and you're giving them all to her. And that'll please her. It doesn't mean you have to do what she says. It just means you have to listen to what she says. There's a difference. I listen to a lot of things my wife says, but if, if I look at that and say, well, I can disagree with her, but I still have to listen to her before I can do that. Are we going about the business of pleasing our wives, men? It's your job. It is the extent. It's probably what we should make you promise. If our ladies were really on to it, they would really make you promise in the wedding vows, do you promise to please her all your days? That's what the Bible says. You want a strong marriage? You're going to get up in the morning and say, how can I please my wife? And not just on a, on a physical level or just on a fleshly level or a worldly level, what the world says is pleasing to her, but what we know from God's Word will give her safety and fulfillment and a true knowledge that this is a man who loves me and me alone and I am precious in his sight and he is willing to sacrifice even his very life and anything that's precious to him to secure me. Now, ladies... You're not off the hook either because right away he turns around and says, listen, you're an unmarried woman. You're going to care about things of the Lord. Well, you can, but there's something that comes before that and that is you who are married cares about things of this world, how she may please her husband. Ladies, guess what? Your first thoughts are in the morning. How am I going to make him happy today? And that's not just about fixing his favorite food either. You need to do your job of investigation into manhood and say, what do men want really from their wives and from their families? And you will discover that what we really want more than anything else, surprise, surprise, exactly what the Bible says that we really want is to be honored, respected, obeyed. To be given recognition of the role that God has placed upon our shoulders and to value that role. That when a husband says, I want to provide for you, it isn't just because he doesn't want you to be hungry 
and threadbare. He wants to give you cause to honor Him. He wants to give you cause to be thankful for His role in your life. Proverbs tells us what the worst kind of wife to have is, and that tells you exactly the opposite you should be after. You want to have a miserable marriage? Be contentious. And contentious people are unthankful. They're self-centered. And when our ladies, our wives wake up and say, how am I going to please this man today? I mean really please him. Not on a superficial level, of I'm going to go uh, you know, get him his beer and turn on his TV for him and hold the remote and sit beside him and, and cheer at whatever team he tells me to cheer at. Oh no, something much more substantial than that. How can I really, in the depth of manhood, make him happy? Please him. And this is what Paul directs us very briefly, very directly. He says, listen, this is the key. A woman, we know, desires more than anything else to be loved unconditionally and sacrificially by her husband. And a husband's ought to investigate, how do I show that? How do I do that? A husband desires for his wife to submit to who he is and with the role that God has placed him in. And our ladies need to look and investigate. How do I do that? Because our natural man won't move us in that direction. And when we follow that natural man, it will destroy every relationship, no matter how much you loved each other at the beginning. No matter the degree of infatuation, it is driven by that every relationship is in jeopardy. But when we who are married wake up and say, how can I please my spouse today? This is how you begin to please God that day. Do not disassociate these. Paul doesn't. You cannot begin to please God that day if you haven't begun that day determine how to please your spouse. Boy, suddenly all these singles are going, that's what it means? So I can just wake up and please God and not have to worry about pleasing Him? Exactly. That's why it's easier to stay single. It gets to the point that later on we are even told that God is going to listen to your prayers because of the way you're mistreating your wives. Amen. Yeah. The Old Testament prophets looked at it and says, why are you treating your wives this way? How do you expect God to bless us? We are called to be a blessing in the home. And for a godly wife to wake up and right over there on the next pillow over is this godless husband to wake up and say, how can I please him today? Oh, it's a frightening prospect. And it's one I would want every one of you to avoid. But the reality is, unless you wake up with that mentality, you will never have the influence there that God wants you to have there. 
and it will drain your relationship with God. It will destroy it because you always hold it against God that you had to wake up with this guy every day, day after day after day. And until you find fulfillment in that relationship as an expression of godliness, I don't see that you will have a fulfillment in a relationship with God. And so we are called upon as much as it relies upon us to live at peace with all men. As much as it relies upon you, you're going to have a peaceful home. If they don't want that and they want to look back at Sodom and they want to destroy their lives, that is their choice, not yours. Theirs to make. Yours is to fulfill the role God has called you to fulfill in that home for you sanctify it. By living righteously. Now, having said all of that, one last principle in three minutes. You can avoid all of this by only marrying in the Lord. That is, someone who's in the Lord. My fear would be that you read verse 14 and verse 16, and I have heard this from young people too. I'm sorry, I've really got my eye bothered. Excuse me. I cannot, my eye's just fluttering. That verse 16 and and 14, that we read those verses and we think, well, I'm going to date this unbeliever and and I'm going to see him get saved. He marries me, he's going to want to get saved. Wrong, wrong, wrong. The warning here, and it is a warning, is do you want this? No. When this happens, here's what it means in your life, and here's what it's going to entail, and here's what God might do, or He might not do. And a lot of it largely depends upon whether this person is receptive to that testimony or not, whether they're receptive to the grace that is given to them by your presence at home. But the best thing, Okay, first, the best thing, you're not going to get married. The next best thing, if you're going to get married, be sure you're getting married in the Lord. Be absolutely sure that this is someone who loves God, not just because they're in love with you. And by the way, people will lie about that to get you. Ladies particularly. I don't know why, but men are liars ever. Um, they will lie, they'll walk the aisle, they'll get baptized, they'll go through the, all the thing, and then you say, I do, and they'll go, oh, I'm not really interested in church. Really? Yeah. Happens all the time. And vice versa. Okay? Um Trust me, I know you think that he's different or she's different. Oh, we're not like that. Um, Yes, he is. All men are the same. Please listen to Dad. He knows. The solution is to avoid the situation. To avoid it ever happening in your life. That you are in your flesh tied to someone who's not going the same spiritual direction you are. And that could even be someone who calls themselves a Christian but isn't living for the Lord. 
So when you have the liberty to marry, you marry whoever you want, the Bible says, but make sure to avoid this situation by marrying only in the Lord. Be sure. For every spouse who's had to live verses 10 through 16 will tell you, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Biggest mistake of my life. We want you to have successful marriages. Paul has given just a little glimpse into it. But these two principles alone, if they were practiced consistently in our homes, would drive the word divorce from our vocabulary. If we would simply marry only in the Lord and we would wake up every day and say, how may I please my spouse? You see, as long as you live selfishly, you will never have a fulfilling relationship. But even when you live selflessly and marry someone selfish, you have responsibility before God to keep living it, though you will receive nothing from them in return. And that's a kind of life, a kind of misery I don't want for anyone within the hearing of my voice or the exercise of my authority to marry or not. So we are called upon to peace. Not as the world gives or promises to give, but as only God and godliness in a home can do. So I challenge you to be Noah's and Lot's in your household. That even for a season they will be delivered. For a season they'll have opportunity that isn't afforded to others out there. And that they might have the greatest opportunity to repent and to be saved.